kind of anticipating Advent so that we can anticipate Christmas. See how that works. I want to invite our children to Children's Church. Um, it's just a more age-appropriate setting for them to hear from the, the Word of God. And uh, as they go, I want to make a quick announcement before we pray. Um, many of you remember Revive AV. There's a friend church. It was a church plant here in the Antelope Valley. We hosted Pastor Jeff. We gave him an office here for a while. Uh, they merged with a uh, church that was not doing well. And uh, they're now over on J by uh, um, 5th Street East in this, uh, this facility. And um, after they merged, about 90% of the people who were in the old church left, even though they said they would stick around. And where Revive AV is now is they're not doing well. They're struggling. And so Pastor Jeff, probably right at this moment, is reading a letter to the congregation. And they're going to cease to be a church. They're going to shut down. And um, this is something that Jeff and I have been talking through, and he's got a number of uh, counselors helping him to understand what's going on. His letter was, was not, well, you know, that didn't work. His letter is very hopeful. He reminds the congregation of everything that the Lord has done through them so far up to this point. But they're going to stop being a church, um, and they're going to, over the course of the next few months, wrap everything up. Uh, the facility that they have, they have a, a nice facility and then a couple of acres next to it, an empty lot. They're going to sell that, uh, propose a sale to a Filipino congregation that is just bursting at their seams. They can't fit in their facility. So this is going to be a real blessing to the Filipino congregation. And uh, Jeff is now looking for other employment, um, looking for other ministry options. So I just wanted to announce that before I pray for them so not so we're not all distracted and going, wait, what? <laughs> I don't like making announcements in prayers, you know what I mean? So uh, let's pray, and I, I want to pray specifically for them especially. Lord, we're, we're grateful uh, to have the season of Advent to look forward, to think about the promise of the coming Messiah, the coming uh, 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 promised child of Eve, the promised son of uh, Abraham, the uh, promised high priest pictured in Moses, the promised uh, child of David who would reign. And uh, Lord, so as we set our minds into that, that anticipatory mode, looking forward to uh, the coming of Christ, Lord, I pray that that would just heighten our anticipation of Christmas where we celebrate the incarnation. Uh, Lord, would you walk with us in this season, help us to see and to, to anticipate Jesus. Father, we pray for Revive AV as they're meeting this morning um, and they're getting ready to end their corporate life as a body of Christ. Uh, Lord, I pray for the, the saints who attend there, the people who are part of the church. Lord, would you lead them to the ministry where they would grow in Christ the most? Lord, lead them to a church that would help them to see Jesus more clearly and follow him with all of their hearts and minds. And so, uh, Lord, as, as they're wrapping up, I pray that you are calling those people to other churches to help them grow in Christ. Lord, we pray for Jeff and Julie as they're looking for new employment, new opportunities. Jeff's heart is still in ministry, and uh, he's convinced, Lord, that you have called him to service. And so we pray that you would uh, lead Jeff. Uh, right now, uh, they're in a very hazy place where they're not sure what comes next. And so, Lord, would you be faithful again to him and show him what it is that you're calling him to. And I pray for Julie and their children that they would, um, they would anticipate what you're going to do as well. So, Lord, it, it is heartbreaking to see a church end. We need more solid, biblical, evangelical churches in the Antelope Valley. Um, and so, Lord, we pray that uh, if... Revive AV didn't make it, Lord, that you would start more churches that will.
Um, and we thank you for the ministry that you accomplished through them so far. Lord, I pray again for us. Would you please be with us now as we turn to your word? Help us to see Jesus in these psalms and to anticipate him. And I pray that all of this would go to intensify and to heighten our worship, that we would be, again, amazed at who you are and what you've done. And so, Lord, be with us now as we turn to your word. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So our sermon series for Advent is going to be the, psalm, the, uh, the Advent Psalms of Christ. And one of the things as we were going through the book of Acts is I noticed that psalms come up a lot. <laughs> and I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great to go ahead and look at some psalms that promise who Jesus is? Um, one of the uh, scholars I was reading when he was talking about how the New Testament uses the psalms, he said, the New Testament continually uses the book of Psalms to fix our gaze upon the excellencies of Christ, upon his majesty, beauty, and the glory of the one who, through his humiliation and exaltation, reigns over the nations, leading them to heavenly Mount Zion so that, lost in wonder, love, and praise, they may proclaim eternally the glory of the triune God. The Psalms in the New Testament are constantly used to draw us and point us to Jesus. And so it just seemed like it was a really appropriate thing to do is to look at some psalms for Advent, to let them draw us to Jesus. Um, I picked four. There are so many more that we could have gone through. There are so many psalms that are just littered with, with information about Jesus Christ, but I picked these four that we're going to look at. So this morning we're going to start with Psalm 2. Um, and, uh, and that's what we'll be doing is going through the Psalms for the next couple of weeks. So what I'd like to do this morning is since we're, we're in this new thing, we've been doing Acts and, and Genesis for such a long time. Now we're at this book of Psalms is I want to do a, a kind of a short introduction to the book of Psalms. Then we'll take a look at Psalm 2. We'll try to read it in its context, in which it was probably written. And then at the end, I want to go and say, now, what does the New Testament do with this Psalm? How does the New Testament see Psalm 2? So uh, just a quick introduction to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is a collection. So if you say who wrote it, we have no idea who wrote it. Multiple people wrote it. It was a collection of Psalms that were written over a long period of time and put together. So a lot of times when you think of Psalms, you think of David. And that's, that probably makes sense because in 2 Samuel, at the end of the book, uh, David is referred to as the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. He is the sweet psalmist. David has written many psalms. He is mentioned in a lot of psalms. So we tend to think, well, David wrote these psalms, and we just don't know. Because when you look at what these individual psalms say, they cover different periods throughout Israel's history. There's times when it's, it's uh, talking of the blessing of the kingdom. There's times when it sounds like it's while they're in exile. There are times when it sounds like it's post-exile, when they're beginning to return to the land. The Psalms cover all kinds of things in all kinds of different ways. So we don't know who wrote them. And it's not terribly important who wrote them. Um, what's important is God wrote them. Uh, God established these. These are songs that God has written to us. And so these different Psalms, each individual Psalm is its own contained unit. This is why preachers love the book of Psalms. Because if you ever have to guest preach at some place, you can pick up a Psalm and you don't have to worry about the context. It, it's, it's a self-contained unit. We'll just preach psalms. Um, so, so preachers, visiting preachers love preaching from psalms. They contain a thought. Now, that does not mean that the psalms were just kind of jumbled and thrown together in some haphazard manner. There's actually a structure to the way the psalms are put together. 
their themes and their, their ideas. There's a, 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 an assembly that they use to put it together. Who edited the book of Psalms? No idea. They don't even mention themselves. But some editors put these together. They gathered up these, these Psalms throughout history, and they wove them together in a book. And they did it on purpose. There's structure. I don't know if you'll see it, but if you've got your Bible and you look at the very beginning, it says the Psalms, book one. And in my Bible, book one is in all caps. That is in the Hebrew manuscripts. There's actually five books in the books of Psalms. So it's grouped into five different sections. This is, you see how it's not just a random throwing together. They group them. And, and so the first book is Psalm 1 through 41. And then it ends in a doxology. There's the psalm and then there's this brief doxology. The next one is 42 through 72. And then there's a brief doxology, 90 through 106, 107 through 150. The, the way that you can tell this was done intentionally is when you look at, for example, search for the word David in the Psalms. Book one is loaded with David. He's all over the place. There's tons of them. Book two, not quite as much, but there's a lot. And then book three, he's only mentioned five times. He's, he's five Psalms mention him in that entire section. But then in the fifth book, all of a sudden he's back and he gets mentioned again. So you see David kind of eclipsed. And, and the way you can tell this is intentional is because the end of book two, the, the doxology is, thus ends the words of David. And then David is missing. He's, he's just almost gone from the next section before he returns. So there's an intentionality to this. There's a, there's a, a rhythm and a, and a pattern to it. But it's not like studying a book of history where we have to go through the story because Luke is telling a story step by step. These are more thoughts gathered together. So what is a psalm? What are, what are psalms? Well, a psalm at its root is basically Hebrew poetry. It's just a poem that's written in a Hebrew style. Now, Hebrew poetry is not like our poetry. Our poetry, we tend to have two things in it, rhyme and meter. So for example, an orange is colored orange, but Greenland is not green. Pinkies are not pink. What can all of this mean? So you get the rhythm. There's a rhythm to it. There's a rhyme, that kind of stuff. Hebrew doesn't do that. It doesn't have rhythm and rhyme. It has a pattern to it because these psalms were written to be sung or to be chanted. So there is accents in there that, that kind of move it along, but it doesn't have rhyme. So what makes it a Hebrew poem? Well, what makes it a Hebrew poem is something called parallelism. And what it is is, is the author will state something and then say it again in a different way. So he might repeat it in a, in a, using different terms. He might say, I will not, therefore I will. And so it reflects that way. So it's, a, it's this repetition of ideas. And if you get used to Hebrew poetry, you can find that really beautiful because you get these reflective uh, back and forth images of what the, the author is trying to say. And that really is the heart of what Hebrew poetry is, is this parallelism, this reflection. And so when we look at uh, the book of Psalms, that's what we're doing is we're reading Hebrew poetry. Now, um, sometimes you think of poetry and you think, well, it's, you know, it's flowery, flowery big language. And, you know, poetry, even Hebrew, especially Hebrew poetry, communicates real truth. It's just because it's poetic doesn't mean it's not true. When you do, uh, you take a look through a systematic theology. That's one of those big, huge books that you use to keep the door open or something. Big, huge systematic theology. Take a look at one of those in the doctrine of God and see how many times Psalms are mentioned when they're establishing who God is. 
Um, not just from the book of Psalms, but there's, there's also other places where Psalms are used. Psalms are used quite a lot to speak about who God is. And it accurately conveys information about God. So a poem can communicate truth. It just doesn't do it the way we would expect, like from an epistle. An epistle will say, this is this. But a poem is going to paint it for you in bigger pictures. So, for example, when we look at the Psalms, we hear about God, and it talks about God's mighty right arm, his eyes roving throughout the earth, his wings covering over his people. Does God have an arm, eyes, and wings? No, God is spirit. He doesn't have a physical presence. The Westminster Confession says that he is without parts. He doesn't exist in pieces. So then what's going on with these Psalms? Well, how do you talk about a God who is spirit and talk about him in concrete ways that we can understand? Well, you can use poetry and you can say his mighty right arm is extended to defend his people. And it doesn't mean that he has an arm that he's extending. It's talking about his power, his strength. My right arm can only go so far. It can only be in one place at one time. I can't bring down a building with my right arm. But God, when he talks about his right arm, it's, it's unlimited power. It's unlimited strength. He can do anything. He can be anywhere at any time. So we get the idea, but it's just small idea. His eyes roving about the earth. It's, it's talking about God's ubiquity. His, he's everywhere. There's no place in the universe God is not aware of. He is everywhere in the universe at the same time. He, he knows everything that's going on. In the most distant star, he's aware of a quark that just emerged from a, a split atom. He knows it, even though we don't even know where that star is yet. We haven't seen it. He's aware. That's his eyes roving around the earth. What about his wings? He's got a chicken. He has wings, and he says that he, he wants to invite his people to gather under his wings as a, as a chicken would gather her hens. He talks about those who, who would come under his pinions. He'd extend them over them. When he talks about his wings, he's talking about his loving care for his people, extending his care over. So if you imagine a mother chicken putting her wings out to protect her chicks from the rain, it's God's caring for and loving his people in that way, in that intimate, personal way. It's a beautiful way to paint that picture. So this is what Psalms do, is they will paint pictures with words and communicate deep rich, beautiful truths about who God is. And so now we're going to go through some psalms this month, and we're going to look at them, and we're going to understand from the Hebrew poetry what they're saying about who God is or who Jesus is. So let's start with Psalm 2. Now, it's hard to start with Psalm 2 because Psalm 1 is, one, is what's considered the introduction to the book of Psalms. It kind of sets the mood, the tone for the whole book of Psalms. And then Psalm 150, the last one, is kind of the summing up. So... People will often talk about Psalm 1 as the introduction, and Psalm 2 really goes with Psalm 1. They kind of match up and go together. Um, but we're going to start with Psalm 2 because it's mentioned in the New Testament, so we just have to rein ourselves in and go with it. So let's take a look at Psalm 2 in its context. So the psalm begins with no title, no introduction, no idea who's speaking or who's being spoken to, just a very important question. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? So you get that parallelism? Why do the nations rage and the people? So it's, it's, it's the nations and the Gentiles. Why do all of these other foreign nations, why do they rage? Why do they make noisy assemblies? And why do they plot in vain when they come together? So the psalmist is looking out at the nations that are surrounding Israel and saying, why are they so in chaos? You see, what, what the, would happen in, in these ancient days was the kings would gather together in the spring and they would go out and they would march against each other. 
And they would do it in the spring because, well, the, the, um, the darkness is going away. You're getting more sunshine. Um, you're able to go out in March now. It's getting warmer, so you're not freezing cold while you're out waiting to go attack the other king. And so in the springtime, the, the kings would mount up their armies, and they would go look who was weak, and they'd go pick on them. And then he would take over that nation and either wipe it out or put it into uh, subjection. They'd say, you have to pay us money or we'll, we'll wipe you out. And they would war back and forth and do this. And so the psalmist is looking and he goes, why are you guys doing this? Why do you rage like this? Why do you plot in vain? Don't you understand? He says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. So these, these kingdoms are, are arraying themselves. They're figuring they're going to get together and they're going to attack the Lord and his anointed. That's their plan. Is, is they're going to come against Israel and they're going to take over Israel. And the psalmist is looking and saying, you, you can't do that. It is vain to try to do that. You cannot attack the Lord. So the idea that the rulers are going to attack the Lord, they're going to attack Yahweh, makes no sense. It's impossible. You can't. Now, you could go and attack Moloch or Dagon or some of these other false gods because there was a big idol sitting in the temple who was their god. And so one of the things the nations would do is they'd go raid each other's temples and take their gods and haul them away. You can't do that with Yahweh. If you march into his temple, you know what you find? A box. The Ark of the Covenant. That isn't God. God never said that was God. As a matter of fact, I was reading in, um, in Chronicles, and what's going on in Chronicles is David has just brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and set up a tent for it. But the tabernacle where the tent is supposed to be is up in a high place in Gibeon. And so Solomon goes up to Gibeon, and the Lord speaks to him from the tabernacle. But the Ark is in Jerusalem. <laughs> so we should never confuse the Ark of the Covenant with God. They're not the same. As a matter of fact, Saul pulled out the Ark of the Covenant, trotted it off to battle, and the Philistines took it. Did they have Yahweh? No way, man. They did not have Yahweh. They can't take Yahweh. He is not the Ark of the Covenant. What they did is they hauled what they assumed was Israel's God into Dagon's temple, saying, yeah, we'll set him here because we defeated their God. See, Dagon, we brought you a present. And when they woke up in the morning, Dagon's laying on his face. So they set up the mighty, all-powerful, uh, the, the in, insurmountable Dagon. They have to pick him up and put him back on his altar. And the next morning, he's broken. He's fallen down again, and his head and his hands broke off before the ark. That's not even God. That's the Ark of the Covenant. So this is what the kings would do. And so when they look at Israel, they're assuming their God's like our God. If we go in and we capture that golden box, that's their God, and we got him. And what, what the psalmist is saying is, that's not possible. You can't do that. You cannot war against Yahweh and his anointed. And when it says his anointed, his anointed there is the word Messiah, his Messiah. But what, is, what does anointed mean? Uh, when we think of the word Messiah, have you, if you hear it in popular culture, somebody gets a Messiah complex where they're going to go suffer to deliver people. Or somebody gets a Messiah complex and they're going to go, you know, just work some great miracle. At its heart... The term Messiah is not someone who dies to save somebody else. At its heart, the term Messiah is not a miracle worker. At its heart, the term Messiah, or anointed one, is a king. It is a ruler. When David is speaking of Saul, even while he's running from Saul, when he speaks of Saul, he says, I will not extend my hand against the, Lord, or the Lord's anointed. 
I won't put my hand against the king that, that God has established. And then in Luke 23, when the, the Pharisees are trying to bring accusations against Jesus, they take him before Pilate and they said, look, he claims to be the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for anointed. So it's the Greek word for Messiah. They say, Pilate, you've got to do something about him because he claims to be the, the, the Christ, a king. And if he's Christ, the king, then he is in opposition to Caesar. Pilate, you've got to do something about this. Otherwise, you're no friend of Caesar's because here's, here's an opponent. So you see that at its heart, the idea of Messiah is that he's the king. So when we talk about Jesus as the Messiah or Jesus as the Christ, first and foremost, we've got to think of that as a kingly office. Now, to achieve his kingship, to, to ascend to the throne, he came and worked miracles. He came and he performed miracles to demonstrate this is the kingdom of God breaking into this fallen, broken order. I have the authority over the effects of sin. I can cancel sickness. I can make blind people see. I can even raise the dead because I am the king. And how did he accomplish that? By dying and then rising again. So, so the death and resurrection, the miracle workers are part of Messiah, but the heart of it is the king. So what they're looking at here is the psalmist is looking and he's saying, you people cannot attack Yahweh and you have no chance against his Messiah because he's established him. So the picture there that he paints is this noisy, chaotic situation where the nations are, are rattling swords and, and banging shields together and marching and beating drums and stuff. And he looks and he says, in the middle of this chaos is Yahweh and his anointed. And you can't even touch him. So he says, they, they say, let us, um, let us burst the bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the idea is these noisy nations are going to look to God and they're saying, we're going to cast you off. We're going to get rid of you. Now, if this is written in the time of David or of Solomon, the kingdom was well established then. And they had subjected other kingdoms and would require tribute from them. They'd go to a, they'd defeat somebody in battle and they'd say, okay, you can remain as king, but you have to send us 500 talents of gold every year or we'll come and wipe you out again. So we already demonstrated we can do it. And so what's going on here is, is David is ruling over these, these uh, kingdoms and they're saying, well, we're going to throw them off. We're going to get rid of them. We're going to cast them off. We're going to break their bonds. We're going to be set free from this tyrannical rule, and we'll go back to doing what we want to do. So that's the picture. That's, that's the, the image of what's going on is these noisy nations are going to cast off God and his, his anointed. And now all of a sudden, the psalmist switches the scene. The camera pans up, and he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. So in the midst of all of this chaos, all of this, this brutality, this anger, this, this noisy tumult, God is sitting in heaven laughing at them. You can't even get close to me. How are you going to, you can't call, haul me away. I'm in the heavens. I'm not touchable. And he's, they, so he's laughing at them. He says, you're like foolish children. And he holds them in derision. Derision is this kind of mocking hatred almost. So he's looking at them going, you, you're a bunch of fools. You can't do anything about this. And then it says that he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify him in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So in the midst of all your scheming, all your plans, look at what I've done. I just, because I wanted to, I established my king on my holy hill, period. End of story, done. You can't do a thing about it. 
So he says that he, he's, he's going to speak to them in his wrath and his fury. He's saying, my king is already established. Zion is already established. Jerusalem exists. The king lives there. And all the surrounding nations are, are subjected to him. I've already done it because I'm that powerful. I can do these things. It says, for me, I will set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What is Zion? Um, we often think of Zion as just a synonym for Jerusalem. And, and it kind of makes sense because what happened is David, um, after Saul died, David was made king. But at first, he was only made king of the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And so he set up his, his throne in Hebron, and he became the king over Judah and over Benjamin. But eventually Israel, the northern ten tribes, got the idea, you know what, David is actually a really good king. So we'll submit to him. So the northern ten tribes make an agreement with David and they say, you'll be our king as well. So under David, these two dispersed tribes unite. But he says, I can't stay at Hebron. I've got to be moved more closely to my whole nation. And so he goes to this city called Jebus. And in uh, 1 Chronicles 11 and 2 Samuel 5, it says, The inhabitants of Jebus said to David, You will not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. So what happened is, when David is surveying the land, he says, You know, this, this city, Jebus, is really well-placed. It's up on a hill. It's hard to get to. If we take that, that will be a great place to have my, my throne set up, my, day, my city. So he goes up against the Jebusites and he takes over Jerusalem and he establishes what's called the city of David. Now this is pre-Jerusalem. Jerusalem will grow from that, but that's what it's called. And where it sits is what's called Zion. And so um, in 1 Kings 8, when Solomon gets everybody together and he is uh, going to, the, the Ark of the Covenant is there. This is when he's getting ready to go worship God. It says that um, they, they've built the temple and he's going to bring up the Ark of the Covenant out of the city of David, which is Zion. So that's the most historical use of the term Zion, is it was the city of David. The term is used widely in the Psalms and in the prophets. And usually when Zion is mentioned in those contexts, it's not this small portion of Jerusalem. It's the idealized kingdom which is in mind. So historically, it was a real place. But the way it's used poetically and prophetically is this idealized, perfect city of God that, that's going to be established on the hill. So in the 1940s, when Israel was going to be established as its own unique nation, the people who wanted that to happen were referred to as Zionists. And today, when people talk about Israel, and they usually in negative terms, when they talk about Israel wanting to, to um, dominate that area and be a, a, a safe and sovereign society, they're referred to as Zionists. And where they get that is from the scriptures, where it's this idealized, secure, broad nation. That's Zion. So when, when it's used here in the Psalms, as for me, I set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's this, this anticipating, this looking forward to Jerusalem being secured and the nations being secured and, and, and the, the anointed one ruling from Jerusalem, from Zion, this idealized, perfect city. And what God says is, I've already done it. I've set, I've set my king there. So if this is written in the time of David and Solomon, boy, they sure did. Because under David, he defeated all their enemies. He brought the, the area to peace. And under Solomon, they had tremendous economic growth. As a matter of fact, one point in the Chronicles, it says 
they didn't even count silver anymore in the city. It became like rocks. They didn't really mind it so much. Tremendous economic growth. So looking at that, you say, oh, this is Zion. This is this, is this idealized holy hill that God has set up in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the, the utter noise. Then the psalmist changes. Now the voice changes. He's been talking in the second person, looking at it, and now he speaks in the first person. So who's speaking here? Um, I think it's supposed to be the psalmist is supposed to be echoing the name of the king, echoing the voice of the king. He says, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So it's like the king is reporting, this is what God has said to me. So at this point, I think it's probably referring to Solomon. Because remember when God made a covenant with David, he said, uh, you're going to make a house for me. You're not going to make a house for me. In other words, he says, David, you're not going to build the temple. Instead, I'm going to make a house for you. And he didn't mean a house. He meant a dynasty. So God kind of plays on this word here, this, this house idea. And when he promises that he will make a house, he said, one of your descendants will sit on the throne forever and your son will build my temple. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. So that's what's going on here. It sounds almost like this is Solomon saying, this is how God talked to me. As he referred to me as his son. Today you are my son, or you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I've ascended to the throne. I have taken over the reign of David. And so now God is saying, today you are my son. This is, this is how it works. Now, we have to be careful here because in pagan cultures around them, when the king said, I'm the son of God, what he was saying is, I am God. And the king now looks down on his, 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 uh, um, his nation as less than him. And so he can do whatever he wants because the king says, I am God. Therefore, you can't touch me and I can do however I please. But that's not how it is in Israel. If you look through um, many of the, the commandments in the law that talk about the king, it, it refers to your brothers. The nation is your brothers. You're not exalted above these people. You're not lifted up and made special above these people. These are your brothers. And you are not a god. You don't become a god. You become my son in that I will relate to you as a father to a son. And that's why in the Davidic covenant, he says, when he sins, I will correct him with the rods of man. I will, I will spank him like, a, like my son. I will take care of him. So that's probably Solomon. This is probably putting the voice in Solomon's, or the, the, the words in Solomon's mouth saying, today I have become God's son as I have ascended to be the king in David's place, and, and now I have all of this. And so what does God promise me? Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. God came to Solomon, and he said, Solomon, you're now established as king. What do you want? Ask whatever you want. And Solomon looks at him, and he says, you know what I really need, Lord? I'm not big enough to rule this people of yours. Give me wisdom. Give me discretion. Give me understanding. And God looks at him and says, Solomon, you could have asked for anything, and I would have given it all to you. But you asked for wisdom, and so I'm going to give you wisdom. You're going to be more wise than anybody else, but not only am I going to give you wisdom, all the things you didn't ask for, I'm going to give them to you as well. So doesn't that sound like what he's saying here? Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. Solomon establishes covenants with other kingdoms. He rules over other nations. He is enriched. It all comes into him. Ask for me and I will make the nations your heritage. The ends of the earth, your possession. 
Now, the ends of the earth for these people at this time was, did not include North America. As far as they knew, we didn't exist. Is that, as far as they didn't know, we didn't exist. They didn't know we existed. But what they did know was the nations from the Nile to the Euphrates were the big boys on the block. And that was exactly what God had promised to Abraham would be the, the borders of their nation. They would rule over all of this territory. So when he says the ends of the earth will be your possession, he's, he's reiterating that covenant promise. I'm going to give this entire territory to you. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In our house, our countertops are tiled and our floor is tiled and our sink is one of those good old-fashioned heavy metal iron sinks with uh, porcelain on it. Not like the, the newer ones that have um, um, stainless steel that give a little flex. If I drop a coffee mug, I wince because <laughs> there's a 95% chance it's going to break. The, the, the sink doesn't yield. The floor does not yield. There's no carpeting to bounce off of. That's the picture here is this king is going to come in and it's like he's got a rod of iron and he comes up to an earthen vessel made out of clay, baked in an oven, just walk up and pink, and it's busted. That's how effortless it's going to be for this king to rule over the nations. They will not be able to withstand him. That's his promise is my king is established. So you nations who are raging against this, look what I've just promised my king. Are you sure you want to do that? And that's exactly where the psalmist goes next. He turns now from this heavenly council back to the nations. And he says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. There's that parallelism. O kings, O rulers of the earth, be warned, be wise. If you're wise, you listen to the warning. So here's the warning. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve and rejoice, fear and trembling. Now, is he saying here, um, you have to be afraid of God because he's going to zap you and therefore you should be you know, humbled and, and trembling before him even if you hate his guts. Have you ever worked for somebody where you really didn't like them but you respected them because they were your boss and, and they were in charge? You didn't have to love them. You just had to kind of go along with it. I worked for a couple of people in the Air Force that had clusters up here when I had stripes down here and so salute smartly and yes, sir, though I didn't like them. But I always treated him with respect because I feared the legal authority they had. That's what he's saying here. Is that what he's saying here? Is that what he's getting at? Is God's so powerful you should just be terrified of him and be nice and fake it? I don't think that's what he's saying. And, and I'm not getting that just because of other theology. Look at the context. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Rejoice. I, I may have served these other officers with fear, but I didn't rejoice. I did it because that's what I was told to do. If, if you're working for somebody that you don't like, you don't necessarily rejoice. What he's calling them to is not hate God but submit to him. He's saying delight in God, rejoice in God, rejoice in the fact that God has established his king and his kingdom. And that's why he goes on and he says, kiss the son. Now you could kiss somebody in servile fear, right? Um, a, a potentate might come up and extend his ring and you have to bow down and kiss the ring or he might put his foot forward and you have to kiss his sandals. And it's a, it's a show of power and subjection and you're lower than me, you have to bow down before me. But I don't think that's what he's getting at here. He's, he's saying, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in your way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Not blessed are those who fear him and pretend like they like him. 
Blessed are those who, who take refuge in him. So what God's doing is he's establishing his rule over all of these nations and he's calling them in. He's saying, come and submit to me. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm a good God who will take care of you. I've established my king not because I hate you, but because I love you. I want to establish my rule over all. Blessed are those who take refuge in me. That's his message to them. Last week in Sunday school, we were talking and we mentioned uh, the conquest of the promised land. So what happened was Israel's in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. When they get out, they, they travel through the wilderness for a while. And at the right time, God says, now go in and take Canaan. And the command was to wipe out everybody. There were cities that they were to attack and nothing was to survive. And the question was, doesn't that seem harsh? Doesn't it seem unjust that God would do something like that? And, and the way you approach that, the answer to that question, because it's really a good question and people ask that a lot. So pay attention to this part. <laughs> I'm trying to help you with it. God said, go in and destroy this nation. So march around Jericho seven times and kill everything you find inside. Is God being cruel? Is he being malicious and mean? Is he committing genocide? Not really, because what happened was 400 years before that, God told Abraham, your people are going to go into captivity. They're going to go into a nation not their own. They'll be there for 400 years. Why? Because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. The, the people in the land have sinned, and their sin is grievous, but it's not as full as I'm going to let them go. I'm giving them time, 400 years time. And then when their sin is filled, then I will judge them. Some of the, the practices that they had in the land before Israel showed up were horrible. And I'm not just talking about cult prostitution. They would take babies and put them into the, the white hot hands of Moloch and burn them alive. Their own children. This is evil. This isn't a bunch of people sitting around picking berries and singing songs. These are wicked, evil people. And God said their sin will rise up to a certain point and then I will judge them. So did God give them a chance to repent? You know what? He did. Because what happened at Jericho? Israel shows up. The spies go in. The city is terrified, and they're getting ready to fight, except for one house, Rahab, a prostitute. She meets the spies, and she says, you know what? We've seen what your God has been doing. We see how he's been, he's been marching you through the land and taking everything over. The city is, they're, they're weak need at this point, but we want to submit. We want to come under that. So we'll hide you, and then would you be good to us when you take over this land? Because we fear your God. We understand he's more powerful than our gods. And so Rahab and her family are saved. And who does Rahab get to be? Jesus' great-grandma. So did God extend mercy to these people? If they would see and repent... He did. He's doing that right here. He says, you guys, you have to stop waging war against God and his anointed. It's not going to end well for you. It cannot end well for you. He's doing the same thing. That's the call here is not come under God and, and pretend like you like him. It is submit to God and the blessings will flow to you. But if you continue to resist him, his wrath is quickly kindled. So that's the context that this psalm is in. It's probably speaking, like I said, of, of David or Solomon and the kingdom that's established there. It's kind of wishful thinking, remembering Zion and the promise of it. And that's how the original psalmist would have written it. Now, the original psalmist had to write it in a way that they would understand because it had to apply to them. And so for them, the king is the physical king, the descendant of David. Zion is the physical land of 
Jerusalem, that, that plot of land. And that was the promise to them. But that didn't extinguish it. That didn't extend through the whole meaning of this psalm. There's more to it than that. And that's why we pick it up, and now we look to what it says in the New Testament about this psalm. Because there's, there's um, some important things that we get from this psalm. David's son, would he sit on the throne forever? No, he kept dying. They had to keep getting a new one. Was, was the kingdom always secure under him? No, they kept turning to false gods. But the promise was, I will establish my king in Zion, and he will rule forever. And so when we get to the New Testament, that's what we get. That's what we pick up. So listen to some of the ways that, um, that this psalm is used in the New Testament. Acts chapter 4. Peter is released from prison. The, the, the um, chief priest and the, and the council tell him, you don't talk about this Jesus anymore. We'll just beat you and send you on your way. And he comes back and he reports to the church and the church prays. And what they pray is this psalm. They say, Lord, why do the nations rage and plot in vain against you and your anointed? They look at this and they say, this is talking about Jesus and the nations raging. And what's terrifying, what's really something, is who are the nations? What the very next thing is they say, the Jews and Pilate. The nations that oppose your anointed are the Jews who will not submit to the Messiah and the Gentiles. So it carves out this completely other category. Would the original psalmist have thought that includes Israel? That can't include Israel, but it does. That's how the church interpreted it. Then the next time we heard it, we just read it a couple of weeks ago, Acts chapter 13. Paul is in Antioch and he starts preaching. And we get, a cab we get his, his, his sermon. And in it, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, since Jesus is raised from the dead, he will not undergo decay. His body won't rot. And the promise is that his body won't, the, the, the Messiah's body won't rot, but David's dust. So that must mean the only person who could be the Messiah is Jesus Christ, because he's risen from the dead, never to see decay. And then he quotes this, you are my son, today I've begotten you. He, he quotes that as proof. This is how Jesus is ascended to the role of Messiah and accepted as God's son is because he's the risen one. He's risen from the dead. That's, he's the Messiah that's done that. Hebrews chapter 1, steal a little bit of Dan's thunder because he's going to cover this next week. No, he's not because it's 5, not 4. You're going through 4. Okay. Sneaking ahead. So if you're in his Sunday school class, don't pay attention at this point. If you look at the first chapter of Hebrews, the first chapter of Hebrews, the author goes through and quotes scripture after scripture after scripture saying, Jesus is better than anything. And at verse 5, he's saying, Jesus is superior to the angels because to which angel did, you, did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten thee? Which, which angel did he ever say that to? He didn't say that to an angel. He said that to his son. He's greater than that. And then in Hebrews 5, he quotes it again. But this time he says, Jesus is a better high priest. The high priest, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. They kept dying. They kept having to be replaced. Jesus is the better Messiah. He's the better high priest. And he is God's son. So he quotes it again there. And then in Revelation, 20, or Revelation 2, 27, Jesus is speaking to his church. He's, he's making this kind of a prologue in chapter 2 before he tells uh, John, write these letters down to the, the seven churches. The, in his prologue, what he says is, if you will endure, if you will make it through this time of trial and opposition, and I know your opposition is real, he says, then you will rule the nations with a rod of iron. So he takes his promise of his messiahship and he assigns it to the church and says, if you do this, you will rule over these nations with a rod of iron. 
Then in Revelation 15, there's this vision of a woman giving birth in the desert and a, and a dragon sneaks up and tries to eat her son, but her son is the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. So who's that? People go back and forth. Some folks say that's the church and the woman is, is Israel and her wandering in the wilderness and she gave birth to the church and the church is going to rule because look what he said in chapter 2. Eh, possibly, that could work. But that's not the end of the story because the last reference in the New Testament to Psalm 2 comes in Revelation chapter 19. It's the final battle. King Jesus is sitting on his horse. His entire army is arrayed behind him and they do nothing. They stand there and watch as King Jesus rides out, faces his enemies. His foes are lined up against him and he comes out and he's got a sword in his mouth and he just wipes them out and he rules over them with a rod of iron. So who's the woman given birth to? It's not clear. It could be, just based on the context, it could be either one because both of them rule with a rod of iron. Here's what I think is going on. is Jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron and we will rule with him. So I wasn't going to go here. I was joking around with Dan about this. I wasn't going to go here. A little eschatology. So a little theology sidestep. When we look at the end times, when we consider that the end that we get in the, in the book of Revelation, the Bible tells us what the ends are going to be like. There's basically two camps, two ways to understand it. One is Jesus will return physically to the earth and rule as the king here on earth. His resurrected body, he will stand here and with his saints, they will rule over the entire earth. That's called a millennial view. His reign will be called the millennium. Then there is a view that says Jesus is not going to physically return and reign over the earth. Through his church, he will bring his rule over all the earth. Through the preaching of the gospel, he will come and he will reign over the earth. So that's basically the two camps. Will Jesus return or will he not? Because the ones who say he won't physically return say when he, or won't physically rule, they say when he comes back, that's it, time's over, new heavens and new earth. But the folks who say, no, he's going to rule physically. So when I look at this and I hear about ruling with a rod of iron and we ruling with him, does that sound like he is still in heaven and the church is just preaching the gospel? Does that sound like a rod of iron? It just it, I used to be in the non-millennial camp, and it was this and other verses like this that made me go, it just doesn't work for me. So what I think it's talking about here is this promise that Jesus will physically return and he will rule over the nations. The nations will resist him. And so Psalm 2 will just come to life for us because the, the nations are going to go, yeah, okay, he's resurrected, big deal. We don't want to submit to him anyway. And if you think that sounds naive, you don't understand the depravity of the human heart. They will look the resurrected Christ in the face and go, we still hate you. We still aren't going to submit to you. But he will rule with the rod of iron. He will dash. It's impossible to resist him. And I think that's the picture from Psalm 19 is he comes and he just destroys them. So this is the beginning of the hint of what's going on in, in, in Psalm 2 from a New Testament perspective. But there's more to it than that. It's not simply that Jesus is going to be the king and therefore he's the son. It's not simply that Zion is, is Jerusalem. It's, it, it, Jesus may physically reign from the city of Jerusalem. I don't know. But the way the New Testament talks about Zion is... This idealized one. Listen to this. This is from Hebrews chapter 12. But you've come to Mount Zion. He's talking about the Jews who didn't believe they're still in it, they're still in Jerusalem, they're still under the law, 
and he looks to the believers and he says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So when the author of Hebrews looks at it, he says, you have come to Zion, heavenly Jerusalem. And remember, when he's writing, physical Jerusalem is still there. The temple is still standing. But he says, that's not where you've came to. That's not going to endure. That won't stand forever. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the real Zion. And that's not just the author of Hebrews. Galatians chapter 4 uses a similar picture. He says, the, the Jews who don't believe, they're like Hagar's children. They're Mount Sinai. They're law. And so they're still here. They're still on Mount Sinai. They're still listening to the law. But we, we've come to heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem that comes down from God. That's our city. And she's like Sarah. Sarah's the woman of faith. Hagar was the woman of flesh. And that's, that's the picture he paints, is this, this heavenly Jerusalem. And then finally, Revelation chapter 21. John is, is seeing this vision, and the angel says, come here, let me show you the bride of the Christ. Who's the bride of Christ? The bride of Christ, is it, a, is it a city with walls? It's a people. It's you and I. It's all the believers throughout time who have ever followed in Jesus, who have ever hoped in Jesus, either in reality or in promise. That's the, the bride of Christ. And so the angel tells, tells John, come here, let me show you the bride of Christ. And all we get for the next few verses is, there's a city, and it's measured this way, and it's got this, and it's got city uh, gates, and it's got uh, foundations. Never mentions a single person in the whole thing. The only time people are mentioned is he says, there are 12 gates, and the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are etched on the gates. And there are 12 foundations made of precious stones, and the names of the apostles are etched there. What he's talking about when he looks at this new Jerusalem coming down from heaven is not a physical city. He's looking at the people of God in their glory. This is Mount Zion. This is the bride of Christ is Mount Zion. We are Mount Zion. And the, the great news is what happens at the end when the, when the city has come down, the camera zooms in and it says right in the center of the city, there isn't a temple. There's no need for a temple. As a matter of fact, there's no need for the sun to shine or the moon to shine. You know why? Because God and the Lamb are sitting dead center in the middle of this city. And they are the light. They are what shines out from there. So that what that picture is, is we are the people of God, and God is going to do what he's always wanted to do, which is dwell dead center in the midst of his people, not through a temple, not through picture and shadow, but in reality. He's going to sit with us. We will be with God. How do you get there from here? Well, that was the other part of this um, when he says, today you are my son, or you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, Solomon, when he was born, was not the son of God. He became the son of God when he ascended to the throne. And when he died, he was no longer the son of God. Does that make sense? It has to do with the kingship, the relationship to the king. The term son of God is complicated in the Old Testament. Adam is referred to as a son of God because God created him, not because he gave birth to him. The angels are referred to in Job as the sons of God. So what is the son of God? Well, from the way the, the New Testament understands it, when it talks about Jesus being the Son of God, what that's talking about is he's really actually the Son of God. 
So I got to say this, because I think I said this a couple weeks ago, but this is important. They did a survey of evangelicals and you know, people who said they were evangelical, and they asked them a series of questions, and most people got this wrong, and this is heresy. So don't get this wrong. Get this one right. There was never a time, even before time began, when Jesus wasn't God. There was never a time when Jesus wasn't. God, the Son, has always existed. He was not God's first created being. God's first created being was an angel. Jesus did that. So Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father. There's never a time when Jesus wasn't. Right? Okay, we got that straight. So then what does it mean that he is begotten? If, if the Son of God has always existed, how is he a son and how is he begotten? I haven't a clue. We are in very murky territory because we're talking about the glory, the majesty, the expansiveness of God. It's hard for our brains to contain it. But the Father is the Father and the Son proceeds from the Father. That's how we've defined it since about 300 is the Son proceeds from the Father. He eternally proceeds from the Father. He is eternally begotten. There was never a time when he wasn't, but he comes from the Father. He is the Father's Son, in that the Father was the source, the Son was the, the, um, the product that's always existed. That There was never a time when that wasn't the situation. I, I don't know how to go any further with this. We're, we're treading on holy territory. I feel like I should take my shoes off. Right, Because when Moses got close to the burning bush, God said, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. We are really holy ground. One way to understand the eternal begottenness of God that I think is helpful, but I really can't even contain it all, is Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan preacher from uh, early in America's history. He wrote a paper on the Trinity. And Edwards was able to ascend to intellectual heights that most of us won't get to. See if this is helpful. This is how he describes the relationship between the Father and the Son. He's talking about time before time existed. Eternity before God created a thing. God was. That's one of the natures of divinity is there's never a time when God doesn't exist. God existed. He just was. And one of the other attributes of divinity is that he knows everything. Which means, what did he know before he created the world? There wasn't anything to know. What he knew exhaustively, completely, perfectly was himself. He understood all of his glory, all of his majesty, all of who he was. He comprehended that. And so the way Edwards describes it is this perfect, total comprehension of himself by God is the Son. It's so perfect, it's so complete, he is a separate person. And that's why when we hear Jesus say, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. That's what he's saying is they're, they're exactly the same. They are divinity, but they're two separate persons. Sit on that one for a while and watch your noodle bake. I mean, it's just hard to get this idea down. And then was there a time he didn't exist? No, there can't be because God always knew who he was. The son eternally comes from the father. He's eternally begotten. And he is exactly the same as the father in nature. He is the Father. He is the exact representation of divinity. There's a lot of scriptures to support that. So this is that idea of you are my son. First of all, the Son of God has always existed. So what does it mean he said, when he says, today I have begotten thee? This is where it ties back into Christmas. This brings us into Advent. Today I have begotten, ye, begotten thee. I spoke incorrectly earlier. The Son of God has eternally existed. Did Jesus always eternally exist? 
There was a time when Jesus didn't exist. He was conceived in his mother's womb. He was, he was not there, and then he was a zygote in his mother's womb, and then an embryo, and then a child, and then he was born. And as he's born, he's laying in a manger, and he cannot control his bowels. If his mother doesn't feed him, he's going to die. If somebody comes and tips him over, he's got no way to protect himself. He's utterly helpless. And yet, he is the eternally begotten son who has all power. What the Bible says is the universe stays together because he decided to. This child who couldn't control his bowels says, universe, keep humming. And he does. And then Luke 2.52, it says that he grew in stature before God and men. So as Jesus is growing up as a young man, he's learning. He's, he's got to learn Hebrew. How do I speak Hebrew? He's got to read the Bible and understand the Bible. Because the, the Christian doctrine of the incarnation is this eternally begotten, ever-perfect, all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing God added to his infinity, to all of the perfections that he was, he added to it human nature. Now, is, is, does human nature include ubiquity? Is, he, is a human nature everywhere all the time? No way. we got to be in one place at one time. Does that mean that he stopped being God? Because it's this mystery of these two natures coming together in one person in a way that we can't understand. The Chalcedonian definition. Chalcedon was a, a church council that said Jesus is one person with two natures. Never happened before, never happened again. These two natures are distinct. So you don't mix them together and come up with a third nature. His divinity remains divinity. His humanity remains humanity. So they're not confused. You don't mix them together and come up with something else. And they're not divided. Jesus was never at war with himself. His divinity wasn't going, oh, don't do that. And his humanity wasn't going, yes, I'm going to do that. He was never at war, never confused, never conflicted. And I don't know how that works. But that is what Christmas says. So when God says, you're my son, you are eternally my son, Today, this day, you now begin, and I've gotten you. You now become physically present in this broken world. It is the mystery of the incarnation rolled into one. And it is a struggle to understand, but it is glorious. Now think about this for a second. God loves you so much, he wrote a book of poems for you. He used imagery that we could begin to not just grasp intellectually, but we could feel who he is. We get a hint for what the feeling of being with God is, is in these beautiful Psalms. And he loved you so much that the infinite perfect God who existed in heaven had angels surrounding him, telling him how wonderful he was constantly, added to himself a human nature, a little lower than the angels. He added that to himself, and he didn't become a human that was the most powerful, the most beloved, the most wonderful in the entire earth. He didn't come down partly to humanity. He came all the way down to humanity. He took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself. And when he humbled himself, he didn't just humble himself to say, well, I'll just play at this for a little while. He suffered death in our place. This is the, the nature of the incarnation. This is the picture of God's love for his people that we get from the second psalm, today I have begotten thee. Merry Christmas. The incarnation is an indescribable mystery. It is, it is so much more. And then go back through the psalm and look at what the promises are. I have established my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
Jesus is our king. He's ruling in Zion, his holy hill. He will rule over us. He will rule over the nations. We will stand with him and rule over the nations. The wrongs that you feel in this world, when you, when you know something just isn't right, there is coming a day when we will stand with King Jesus and he'll say, execute justice this way in that place, and we will go do that. That cry for justice in our hearts, that longing for things to be right, will be answered when Jesus comes and rules from his holy hill. That's the promise. That's the hope that we have. That's what Christmas pictures. This is from a psalm written hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, but picked up and echoed through the New Testament is that important. So this is our, our psalm of Christ, the incarnation, the coming and ruling king. Let's pray. Lord, I confess that my simple mind, constrained by the confines of this world and, and the best of human learning, cannot comprehend you. Can't find a way to explain the Trinity in clear, easy terms. Cannot understand the depths of what it means that you became flesh, that you incarnated. And so, Lord, as we come into this Christmas season, as we get ready to celebrate the birth of our Savior, Lord, I pray that you would blow our minds with this reality of the incarnation, the eternally begotten Son of God being born in a manger, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the one for whom all things were created, enters his creation. And Lord, we thank you for your intimacy that you would come so close to us. Lord, I pray that the warning to those kings would be ringing in our ears that, Lord, we wouldn't oppose like the kings do. Lord, that we would kiss the Son, that we would seek shelter in him and be blessed. Lord, those warnings are as live and as real today as they were when the psalm was written. So, Lord, would you help us to seek our shelter in you? Be with us in this Christmas season. May it be marvelous to think of you coming. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Tim. I kept struggling with the verse, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. This idea of fear and rejoicing and trembling and rejoicing. And then you got to that part about the theology that we just can't explain and the glory of God. And I say, it makes perfect sense to rejoice in fear of these things that we can't completely understand and in trembling because of his greatness and his otherness. So let's stand and rejoice in the Lord as we respond this morning.